Amen. Well, good morning, Grace Church. How are you? Good. Good to see you. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad you guys are here today. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 6. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. My friend Patty would love to give you a Bible so that you can see that what we're reading is in the Word. Uh, happy Father's Day to all the dads. Uh, I have three daughters, and uh, it is a fun, fun life. I, I want to remind you that this is a great opportunity as a dad to remind your children that you are stronger than them, um, just because it will sear in their mind uh, for a long time. When I was a kid, I remember trying to take a rim off of a basketball uh, backboard, and I couldn't break the bolts no matter what. And my grandpa was there. I was like, Grandpa, can you help me? And he just took the tool from me. And I'd never seen his forearm do this before. It just like exploded into Popeye forearm. He just broke the bolts effortlessly. And I remember thinking like, uh, I've, I've underestimated you, grandfather. Um, it's called old man strength. So you guys know about old man strength. Recently, uh, I was doing the thing where I take every one of the groceries from the car into the kitchen without two trips. You know, because if you take two trips, you're less of a man. Uh, and so you just deal with the scars. And my daughter, Lucy, was going to help me. She had a gallon of milk, and she couldn't carry it. And I was like, Lucy, put it on my pinky. Right? And she's like, I can't, Dad. It's too much. I'm like, trust me. Just drop it on. And she drops it on my pinky, and I am holding it with my pinky. And, and her face just changes. She's like, oh, my God. I, I had no idea I was in the presence of such power. And uh, it's like, I know. Look out. Open the door. I, so uh, you, you just, dads, you can do that. You can sear into your child's memory, your strength. It's important. Cool. Uh, all right, here we go. Book of Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6. For, for 16 weeks now, we've been in the book of Mark. I hope you've been enjoying it. I have very much been enjoying it. Uh, and if you were to think of this story almost like a bell curve or a mountain, uh, last week we hit the top of the mountain, the, the crescendo of... Jesus' influence and his power was shown last week in the feeding of 5,000. Some scholars say there was 20,000, 25,000 people there, and Jesus feeds them miraculously with five loaves and two fish. It's a huge deal that the miracle that we saw last week uh, is one of two miracles that all four gospel writers have an account of. You want to know the other miracle that all four gospel writers have an account of? It was this minor thing called the resurrection. Right, so significant. So this, the feeding of 5,000 is a significant miracle. It's massive. The, the enthusiasm in the crowd is massive. The, the scope of Jesus' ministry has never been bigger than this moment in Galilee. And the people want him to be king. And they're pressing on him to be king. He is the king who can make bread available for people. They want him to, to be the king that, that prevents them from having to be under Rome's leadership. They want them to be set free. They want Jesus to be king. And what we've seen over the last few months is that, yes, Jesus is the rightful and true king of this world. Remember we talked about Jesus is Simba from the Lion King? Remember that? Anybody? Yeah? Okay, this is important. Pride Rock belongs to Simba. It's his. Scar, okay, we're not going to go back through that. But he's the rightful king. Jesus is the rightful king. And he is recruiting a people to live under his rule and his reign forever. But what we've learned is that Jesus has no interest into conforming to other people's expectations of him. He is doing a different thing. And so, yes, he is the rightful king, but people wanted physical nourishment. And Jesus has come to satisfy us eternally. So he's not conforming to people's expectations 
But that's the tension we're going to find ourselves in this text. So I want to frame two questions in front of us as we look at Mark chapter 6. A couple of questions that we can think through as we look through this text. Question number one is, what, what do you think God is like? Because Jesus is helping us reframe that question. Everything we see Jesus doing sometimes comes against our expectations of what God is like. What's his character? Who is he? What's he care about? What's he passionate about? What does he sound like? What is God like? And the second question is, what is your vision of the good life? Jesus comes against that. Oftentimes what you think of as the good life is not what Jesus thinks of as the good life. And so as we follow along in the story, we're getting a new vision for what God is like, and we're getting a new vision of what the good life is like. And these are the tensions we are going to feel as Jesus challenges our misconceptions about God and challenges our vision of the good life. But if we can get a proper vision for, of who God is, then flowing downstream from that is a proper vision of what the good life is. We are desperate for clarity on these two things, and Jesus is going to help us see that in Mark chapter 6. So here we go, starting again in verse 45. Let's look at this together. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to Bethesda while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. So right away, why would Jesus command? He doesn't ask politely, doesn't say, hey, you guys get out of here. Jesus commands his disciples right away, get in the boat and get out of here. What's going on there? Well, remember the progression of how we got here? Uh, just, just a few weeks ago, we looked at this first moment where Jesus delegates his authority to the disciples to go on like the practice mission trip, this practice commissioning, and they go out and they heal the sick and they cast out demons and they proclaim the kingdom. And guess what? It's effective so much so that likely that 25, 20,000 people group, the disciples in some ways are responsible for that group. They've seen what it feels like. I always think of Nacho Libre in this moment of like, they have a little taste of the glory. <laughs> they can see what it tastes like. You, you, no? Just me? Okay. <laughs> Nacho's like, do you ever want to taste the glory? The disciples taste the glory. They see the masses. Remember the pinnacle of the, the group's gathering, and they get caught up in it. They've just returned from their first trip. They see the crowd. And I wonder if their dreams are being activated of like, maybe this is our moment. Maybe this is our moment that the long-awaited king is here, and this is our moment to activate the crowd, and we can be set free from the oppression of the Romans. And they get caught up in the drama of it all, and Jesus very quickly knows that, and he's like, you guys get out of here. This is not an environment for the spiritually immature I need you out of here, and I'll take care of dismissing the crowd. So he sends them away. You get out of here. And then the Bible says Jesus goes to pray. Three times, the gospel writers tell us Jesus went to pray alone in the mountainside. Number one, when he calls the 12, the night before he calls the 12, he prays all night. Number two, right here. Number three, the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he goes to the cross in our place. So there is an increasing amount of pressure there is an increasing amount of momentum. Things are mounting on Jesus. So he sends the disciples away and he's like, I need to go pray. I need to go pray and be alone with my father. And, and by the way, in this scenario, everyone is exhausted. Everyone's so tired. If you've been following along, they were supposed to get a break. 
before the, the, the transition where they commissioned out. They don't get a break then. Then they come here. They're supposed to get a break, but the crowd followed them. So then they have to feed the 5,000. And right now they're supposed to get a break, but they don't. Jesus is like, get out of here. So they are exhausted. Ministry, life just keeps coming at them, and they don't have a break. Yes, they are exhilarated from the ministry, but they are absolutely exhausted. And Jesus says, get out of here. I'm going to go pray. They dismiss the crowd. Verse 47. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he, Jesus, was alone on land, and he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. If you underline in your Bible, underline this. Straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And shortly before dawn, some translations say the fourth watch of the night, 3 a.m., 4 a.m., shortly before dawn, he went out with them, walking on the lake. And he was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost, and they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. So, so here's the picture. Disciples are sent out. Get out of here. Jesus is on the mountain praying, but he's at an altitude. He's at a level where he can see the disciples. They are in view of him from the mountain. He's up here praying. They're in the water. They're rowing, straining fighting, struggling, not getting anywhere. They're supposed to go to Bethesda. They end up in the garrison. They end up way over here. They're supposed to go this way. They end up over here. It's dangerous. The wind and the waves are pushing against them. It's taking all of their might just to stay in the same spot. They're headed one way, and they're being pushed off course. And Jesus can see this whole thing while he's praying on the mountainside. Can you, can you just imagine that, what that's like for him? Like It doesn't tell us how long it is from when he sees them to when he goes out to be with them. But eventually in the fourth watch of the night, he goes out. He goes out to meet them on the water. And how he gets to them is no minor miracle. This brother is walking on water. The water becomes firm under his feet. And he heads straight out towards them through the wind and through the waves. This is Marvel comic superhero level stuff. This brother just produced enough food for 20,000 people to eat loaves and fish, and now he just walks on water to meet the disciples. This is supernatural authority. Again, Mark is showing us something here. Jesus can see the disciples, and again, just picture, what, what is that like for him? I, I like to imagine that he's thinking about them, and he's feeling compassion towards them. He's feeling love towards them. He's thinking of their names, Peter, James, and John, and Matthew, and he's just picturing them, and he's, he's drawn to them, and those are his friends, and they're getting nowhere, and they're straining, and so at some point, he's like, I got to meet him out there, and, and Mark is, is telling us this story to remind us of the most bedrock foundational truth that we cannot get away from, that even in his human body, Jesus is actively reigning as Lord over the natural world. Jesus can walk out on the water and tell the water, become firm under my feet. And the water says, okay, Lord, we'll become firm under your feet. And it walks out. Jesus is Lord over the natural world. As we've seen in previous weeks, he's Lord over the supernatural world. Every time he faces a demon, he's Lord over that. He's Lord over the physical world. It is a truth that he's trying to get his disciples to realize that that they, are, they have a rabbi, they have a master 
who is actively reigning as Lord over all, and that Jesus is trying to get his disciples to trust him. He's trying to get them to trust him. And so he's on the mountain, sees them, loves them, has compassion for them, goes out to meet them. He thinks to himself, I'm going to go meet. Here's an awesome opportunity. He walks out on the water to meet them. And you might think to yourself that when the disciples see him, they go, oh, right, yeah, Jesus, oh, we should have known. Jesus, hey, guys, good news, Jesus is coming. Uh, Gosh, we should have known. We should have prayed. We should have stopped striving. We should have known. But they don't say that. Their first response is, ah, it's a ghost, which is like sad and funny at the same time. You're like, Jesus was like, have you ever tried to do something awesome for someone and they just don't get it? Jesus is like, guys, I'm about to do something awesome for my disciples. Check this out. And they're like, panicked, it's a ghost. We'll give them some grace. They're tired. They're disoriented. It's the middle of the night. But Jesus wanted to show them something amazing and they, they missed it. And so there's been multiple times in the book of Mark where something is happening that kind of has this shadow from the Old Testament. We saw it when Jesus was sleeping during the, uh, the previous storm and how that story was a shadow of the story of Jonah, Jonah being asleep and then thrown into the water. That was a shadow. We saw it last week with the feeding of the 5,000, shadowing back to the manna falling from heaven in the wilderness for God's people to be provided for. And then we see it in this passage as well. There's something happening here that Jesus is trying to do for them that's incredible, and they miss it. And it's in this phrase, that Jesus intended to pass them by. He intended to pass them by. And Mark uses a very specific phrase there, that he, he intended to pass them by, and it's the same Hebrew phrase you find in Exodus chapter 33, when God is having a conversation with Moses. And so in the story in the Exodus, Moses has led God's people out of the Pharaoh in Egypt, they've crossed the Red Sea, they're in the wilderness, but they're on their way to the promised land. And Moses and God are having a conversation about the promised land, and it parallels perfectly to the the story we're seeing here play out in Mark chapter 6. So in this story, God and Moses are conversing, and we're going to read about it right here in verse 15. Exodus 33, verse 15, says this. Then Moses said to him, that's God, if your presence does not go with us, then don't send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And then the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. And then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see my face and live. But then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock, and when my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will remove my hand, and you'll see my back, but my face must not be seen. So Moses and God are having a conversation about the promised land. And Moses says, if you're not going with us, I don't want to go. And God says, okay, I'll go with you. And then Moses says, show me your glory. Theologian Oz Guinness says, this is the boldest and greatest prayer in all the Bible. To ask God that you might see his glory. And listen, this is the perfect parallel to what the crowd missed last week and what Moses understands clearly. Last week, Jesus told the crowd, I am the bread of life. 
And the crowd told Jesus, no thanks, we would not like that bread. We would like the bread you provide for us. And then in Exodus 33, Moses looks at God and says, God, I have no concern for the promised land if you're not going to be there. In other words, God, you're the promised land, not the land being the promised land. My primary concern is your presence. I have no vision of the good life that does not include you. You are what I want. Your glory is my utmost concern. And that is a vast difference from the crowd in Mark chapter 6. There is a major difference between the, between the prayer. God, I want the promised land. And God, I want you. You're the promised land. There is a major difference between the prayer that says, God, give me the land flowing with milk and honey. And God, show me your glory. Glory means substance, weightiness, heaviness, face-to-face, presence, and intimacy. And that's what Moses wants. Stay with me. I submit to you, that's what Jesus wanted to show his disciples. He sees his disciples struggling, straining at the oars. He's praying for them. He loves them. He knows their names. He sees where they are. He gets it. And his first thought is, you know what I want to do? I want to show them my glory. What they need right now is for me to remind them of my glory, remind them what I'm capable of, remind them of what is in front of them, what they have access to, what Moses could not see in the Old Testament. The disciples can see face to face, and that's what Jesus wants to offer them. He's going to pass by with his glory. And they miss it. But here's the progression And what they experienced in Mark chapter 6 is like this microcosm of what is happening across the church in the macro right now. What they saw then, we can learn from now. So here's the progression. Number one, Jesus sends his disciples into the storm. Number two, Jesus, while praying, sees the disciples straining and struggling in the storm he just sent them into. Number three, Jesus wants the disciples to see his glory. That's, That's the progression. They ultimately think it's a ghost. And verse 50, continue reading. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, take courage, it's I. I was really trying to do this awesome thing with you, but apparently we're not there yet. We'll loop back to it. Just wait till Mark 7, 8, 9. They get lots of chances. It's okay. He loves them. He's patient. He's gracious. Take courage, it's I. I was trying to do a thing. Didn't work out. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. For they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. They didn't understand what Jesus was doing. That's okay. He's gracious to them. But there's, there, there's a lesson being taught here. It's almost like Mark 6 is like this parable. It's a story of what really happened, but it almost serves as this parable for the rest of us. It's beautiful. Let's learn from this as a church. Let's learn from this together. So, so number one, Jesus sends the disciples into the storm. Get in the boat and get out of here. Sends them into the storm. Now, I do not know if you are comfortable with that point. I do not know if I am comfortable with that point. (laughs) But here's what I know. Jesus sent them into the storm, and I just told you he's Lord over all, so that means he probably knew that the winds and the waves were coming. The last time this happened, he was asleep on the boat, so apparently he's not so worried about winds and waves. But he sends them out into it. They are sent away, and the wind and the wave overtake them. 
no matter how much they strain, no matter how much they struggle, no matter how hard they try, all 12 of them, if there were more disciples in the boat as well, they cannot seem to make any headway against the thing that's coming against them. They're overwhelmed. So what is that, what is that teaching us? What's this parable? What's this story showing to us? Listen, what do, what do you believe about God? Let me, let me say this. God will absolutely send you more than you can handle. Absolutely. And I know there's this very popular phrase that God would never give you more than he can handle. Um, my name is Josh. I love you. That's a lie. Like, stop believing that, like, right now. Like, write it in your journal and scratch it out and be like, good try, Satan. Like, that's a lie. How, how highly do you think of yourself that you feel like you can handle everything? And if you're like, are you sure, Josh? I'm going to read to you a Bible verse, ready? Inspired by the Holy Spirit of God through the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. Paul is talking about a missionary journey. For we do not want you to be arrogant and to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. He's telling them about what they experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. The Apostle Paul on a missionary journey, presenting the good news of the kingdom of God, says, I don't want you guys to be ignorant of the affliction that came for us. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despised of life itself. Now, Grace Church, doesn't that feel more like your experience than this other stuff of you'll never have more than you can handle? Doesn't it feel more of like your experience? Like, hey, I have had things where I've been so burdened beyond my strength, I despaired of life itself. And I go, oh, that's a, put that Bible verse on a coffee cup. That feels good. <laughs> I have been utterly burdened beyond despair that I have despaired of life itself. That is, that feels right. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is insinuating that there is a whole lot you can't do if Christ is not strengthening you. But the message is, God won't give you more than you can handle. No, he absolutely will. And he'll do it for a purpose. And you need to lower your belief in yourself and raise your belief in a God who brought you into that scenario to show you your limitations. You need to take the gallon of milk and put it on your father's pinky. Because you can't carry it. You can't. And Jesus sent you into that storm to show you your limitations. And he sees you in it. You're not alone. He sees you. So number two, Jesus, while praying, how beautiful is that? While praying, he sees the disciples straining and struggling and getting nowhere. Grace Church, God sees you struggling. He sees you striving. He sees you getting overpowered. God sees you forcing it and it not working. And in the midst of that struggle, he knows you and he loves you and he longs to help you. He longs to meet you. He has good for you. But so many times we, we miss it. We completely miss what's available to us because we are so committed to keeping it going and doing it ourselves. Jesus is actively trying to engage us in the straining and in the struggle, and we miss his help completely because we're like, I'll do it myself. I'll do it myself. I'm going to do it myself. Don't worry. I'll do it myself. And we reveal our immaturity. 
and we reveal that we'd rather be exhausted and receive help. I was reminded of, of a story when my daughter, Harper, who's eight years old, she was about two and a half, three years old, and if you have kids, you know this, there's this phase where they go through, it's called the I do it by self phase, and uh, this is probably my favorite story of my daughter, but she was in this I do it by self phase, and uh, so it's about, for, it's connected to a deeply meaningful part of my life, which is going to Give, give me a second. Let me give you some context. I lived in Pullman, Washington for 15 years. Pullman, Washington has really cool restaurants, but they don't have a lot of great fast food restaurants. And there was a rumor about 10 years into 15 years, there was a rumor that, that the, the town next door to Pullman, Washington was going to get a Chick-fil-A. And to, you're like, is that a big deal? You have no idea. I cannot... I do not have the words to tell you how big of a deal that was. It was such a big deal to us. I didn't want to believe the rumor at first. I'm like, that can't be true. I will not get my hopes up. Then, in fact, it was true. And there was a countdown. And we put it on our calendar like it was Christmas. We had Chick-fil-A day on the calendar. It was amazing. It was incredible. I cannot tell you. I could taste the waffle fries. Just, I grew up in Texas. I had Chick-fil-A on my college campus. I ate Chick-fil-A every day for lunch for four years. And it was coming to the wasteland Finally, and Eastern Washington's amazing. It just needed Chick-fil-A. So we were getting one. We had Chick-fil-A day. The family gets up. We get ready. We're going to go. We, Harper takes a nap. She gets up from her nap. It's like, we're going Chick-fil-A day, and we're trying to get her dressed. She's like, no, I get dressed by self. And we're like, okay, cool. Nothing's going to ruin today. It's a great day. Put her socks on. No, I do it by self. Okay, put your socks on by self. Now shoes. And she had these shoes that had the straps. She's going to do that by self. I'm still, like, keeping it cool, but I'm getting very annoyed. And so finally we get into the car. And I'm trying to buckle her, and she's like, I buckle her fast. And she's like, no, I do it myself. So I had to unbuckle her and then wait there. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, my stomach's growling. So I, like, didn't eat the first, like, a day and a half before. Like, <laughs> that's not true. It's just drama. I'm just trying to add drama to the story. Um, and so she's, I do it myself. And so finally we get there, and then we forget something. We have to go back. And we're driving. It's like 10 minutes to get to Chick-fil-A. We're driving, and then uh, we're looking up where to park because it's on the University of Idaho campus. And, uh, and my wife goes silent. Amy goes silent. And I'm like, babe, what's going on? She's like, you're not going to believe this. I'm like, what? What's going on? She said, Chick-fil-A closes at 4 o'clock today, not 5 o'clock. And it was like 4.02. And I'm like, that can't be true. That can't be true. And we drive by, and in fact, it is true. Like, people are leaving Chick-fil-A with their bags and their smiles. And, but it, <laughs> and it's closed. It's closed. And, uh, and as we drive past, I just look back at Harper, and I say, you did this to me. <laughs> you did this to me. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think that was sinful. I think it was the truth. <laughs> so we have to go. We, we're hungry, so we eat at Panda Express, right? Totally fine. Not really. But I'm eating my uh, orange chicken. I've never been more grossed out by more. I like Panda Express. But just in general, I was just so mad. And Harper won't eat. She's like, I eat by myself. And I'm like, over it. <laughs> so we get, we finally get home. And I'm like, that's it, Harper. If you say it again, like, you're going to timeout. Like, you're going to. You're going to live in timeout for the rest of the day. And so we get to the door, and she's like, I opened the door by self. And I kick open the door, and I'm like, that's it. You're going to timeout. And so I pick her up, and I start walking. And she just squirms away from me and lands on the floor and looks at me and is like, I go to timeout by self and walks <laughs> and went to timeout. This is, this, this is the true story. Uh, and so she goes and puts herself in timeout, and, and she just stands over there. And so I was trying to offer my daughter the glory of God. And she, she missed it 
because of her obsession of doing things by self. And as ridiculous as that is, there is an unmatched parallel for us that we have to allow God to help us. It's what we are desperate for. But many of us are running around like a three-year-old saying, I'll do it by self, I'll do it by self. And we are missing the glory that is available to us. And Jesus doesn't want that for us. So he sees the disciples straining and struggling while he's praying. And then lastly, Jesus wants the disciples to see the glory of God. That's what he wants for them. It's like, I want to pass them by so they can see my glory. So listen, the disciples are not being punished right here. This is not punishment. This is called a trial. This is a hard moment. And this is a real story that they experienced, but this is a parable for us. But this is the primary tension we face as followers of Jesus, that sometimes God allows extended moments of struggle so that he might reveal something more valuable to us than getting us out of that circumstance. I don't know how long Jesus saw them until he went out to meet them. Four in the morning. But sometimes God will allow extended seasons of waiting or extended seasons of trial because he has something greater in mind. Or another way to say it is every time you're experiencing waiting or a trial or suffering, there is always a greater glory at stake. And we often don't have eyes to see that, but God loves you. And that doesn't mean that everything's going to be great. That's another false premise we have about God. Many people believe, well, if God loves me, that means everything's going to be great. That is a false premise. I love my children, but there are times where I put them into scenarios or I allow things to happen to them that, that are for their good, but they may not have eyes to see it. And they miss it. So I need us to get this. When God waits... And we're in an extended period of struggling and striving and forcing, and we can't get there on our own. Listen, when God waits, he is not contradicting his wisdom, his power, his goodness, or his mercy. When God waits, he's not contradicting his power. He's not contradicting his wisdom. He's not contradicting his goodness. He's not contradicting his mercy. He's inviting you to see a greater glory. And it's often a glory we can't see. And it's often in those prolonged seasons of waiting that you're transformed in a way that you could have never been transformed otherwise. I remember us trying to get pregnant with our kids. We have three kids now, so you're like, Josh, that's easy for you to say. But for that first two and a half years, we really felt like God was saying no to us. And for many years, I would pray and God would say yes. And we were very you know, lucky in that way. But then there was the long season where God told me no. And I was formed in that season in ways that I have not been formed previously. Waiting for our adoption with Lucy, we, we waited and we struggled and we strained and we forced it and we fought back and we tried again and we were formed in that season in ways we could not have been formed otherwise. I'll be really honest with you, before coming into being the pastor of Grace Church, the season right before we moved here, I was striving, I was stressed, I was exhausted. I would wake up early in the morning, 5 a.m., which for some of you that's like regular time, but for me it's like early in the morning, and I just couldn't go back to sleep because of the dread I would feel in bed. So I would just get up and put on my shoes and go on long walks. My neighbors probably thought I was a weirdo because all of a sudden it was just like, I'm just walking all of the time. And I think I was praying. I, th I think I was 
trying to cast my cares on the Lord. But more often than not, what I would find myself doing at five in the morning walking my neighborhood is I would find myself just recalling God's faithfulness in my life. I would find myself remembering the promises that God had given. Because when I didn't know what in the world was going to be in front of me, I knew that he'd been faithful in the past. And so I would find myself saying, I, can, I, I have no idea, I have no control over the future. But I can count on one thing. That the God who's been faithful to get me here will be faithful for whatever's in the front of me. But I was stressed and struggling and anxious. And, and I moved in that, and God formed me in that. God allowing a prolonged season of waiting and striving and struggling was very gracious for me. So Grace Church, what, what, if, what if this parable, this story, could apply to us in this way? What if we stopped thinking about these moments in terms of just trial and struggle and bad, but what if we framed it differently? And, and what if in the darkest moments, when you were most exhausted, what if you realized that God was not punishing you, he was rather trying to get you to see his glory? What if when you were most exhausted and most tired, what if you changed your prayer in that moment from God fix this to God show me your glory? And what if we as a people started to pray in such a way? This is a dangerous prayer where you just said, God, would you take my life and let it be for your glory? Whatever your glory, whatever you can do for my life to get more glory, then do that thing. That is a dangerous prayer. But that is a much better vision of the good life than anything this world is offering you. A life that is maximized for the glory of God is a much better life than anything this world is offering. Because you are asking a good, faithful, loving, wise father to do with your life whatever gets him the most glory in this world. That should be the heart of discipleship. That should be the heart of a disciple to say, God, take my life and let it be all for you and for your glory. Listen, I know that's, that's not easy. I'm not submitting to you that it's easy. But I know it's what transforms you. And I know many of us are tired and we're trying and we're fighting and it's not working. So what if we changed our prayer? I was moved by probably my favorite preacher is a guy named Charles Spurgeon and he struggled with depression and anxiety and the loss of loved ones in his life. And he says this. He says, I bear witness that the worst days that I have ever had have turned out to be my best days. And when God has seemed to be most cruel to me, it's actually then he was most kind to me. If there is anything in this world for which I would bless him more than anything else, it's for the pain and the affliction that he's given me. And I'm sure that, these, that the richest, tenderest love of God has been manifested to me in that brokenness. Love letters from heaven are often sent in black-edged envelopes. The cloud that is black with horror is big with mercy. So fear not the storm, for it will bring healing in its wings. So Grace Church, are you tired of rowing? Are you tired of striving and getting nowhere? Are you tired of doing things in your own strength? Are you tired of being bullied by the trials and the circumstances of this world and making no progress? Well, it may just be that Jesus himself sent you into that storm, just like in Mark chapter 6. 
And I have even better news than that for you. According to Romans chapter 8, verse 34, the Bible says that Jesus has died, he has risen from the dead, and he now sits at the right hand of God. And you know what it says he's doing right now? He's praying for you. He's interceding for you. That the same thing they experienced in Mark chapter 6 is the same thing that we're experiencing right now. That we are struggling and we're striving and we can't seem to make any progress. And Jesus sees us in that and he is praying for you right now. He sees that you're struggling and he looks at us and he says, Would you call on me and would you say, show me your glory? Could we be a church that prays, God, show me your glory? God, would you show us again that you are in the boat with us, God, that you are for us, you are with us? And could we be a people that stop fighting and straining and forcing it? And we release control. And we say, God, I I don't understand. My wisdom can't get a grip on this, but God, I, I release my life to you. And I want my life to be used for your glory. So we're actually going to practice that even now as a church. Chelsea's going to come up and she's going to sing a song over us. And here's what we're going to do as a church. I want you to picture that thing in your life where you're forcing it, where you're struggling, where you're striving, where you don't seem to be making any headway. Maybe as a parent that's with one of your kids and you're like, nothing I seem to do works. What if in that space you just started praying, God, would you show me your glory? Maybe it's in a relationship with someone you have in your life and it's just stuck and nothing you can do seems to make any headway. What if you just prayed, God, would you show me your glory? Maybe it's financial strain in your life or decisions that are coming up where you just feel like you're forcing it and you're stuck. Listen, Jesus sees you in that. He has compassion for you. He knows your name. He sees you. He's praying for you and he wants to show you his glory we be willing to see it? Let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you so much for your word that challenges us. It's your word that shows us you're a good father who wants to meet us in our mess. Lord, right now, all across the church, I pray that we change our prayer. I pray that we stop asking you to fix it and we start asking you to show us your glory. God, right now, would you meet with your church and heal us, Lord. Minister to us, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name.